All right, we're going to go ahead and find our seats again. Continue our worship as we dig into the Word this morning. If you don't know me, my name's Chuck. Um, what an amazing honor that the church picked me to speak on the most important Sunday of the year. Right? That's amazing. That's crazy. Um, wanted to also extend my happy Father's Day to all our dads and wanted to start off with um, just a story of my fathering. Um, when my kids were young, if they ever needed a parent in the middle of the night, they knew who to go to, and it was not me. They knew to go to Katie. Um, I sleep closer to the door. I was easier to get to, but they knew to go to Katie to walk around the bed, right? Um, Katie had the ability to kind of wake up just by hearing the brush of their feet on the floor. That was not the case for me ever, 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 which you'll see in a minute. There was a time when Lucy, my third, I think she was five-ish. She said she was like 15. No, she was five-ish, I think, when this happened. And she had gotten sick in the middle of the night, and so she came to our room to get help. And I guess the emergency was so great that she decided to come directly to the parent closest to her because that's the wise thing to do in an emergency, right? You need immediate help. Um, the problem was that Katie and I are not interchangeable. Uh, I don't exactly, in that moment, I didn't remember kind of how I came to or how I woke up. Um, I do remember several times in my life when the kids had woken us up by just, have, or woken me up by like yelling to me and I'd come out of the fog. But um, I don't remember, I didn't remember how she woke me up, but I remember she got me awake and I saw that she needed me. And because I'm, I love her, I walked her to her room and I started cleaning up and kind of putting things back. Um, and it was, a, it was probably about two minutes into it when I had come awake enough and I just had this like vague idea that I was punched in the face to wake up. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. And I said, Lucy, did you have to punch me in the face to wake me up? And she was like, yeah, I did. And so I think that really encapsulates who we are as dads. Like we really love our kids, but sometimes it might require a face punch to get us into action, right? But that love is still there, very much there. I do not judge her for that because she did what was necessary to get me to help her. Um, we are truly imperfect on our very best day. Dads are imperfect. But thankfully, I have peace because I know and I trust a very loving father, and he loves my kids more than I do, right? Um, I sang this song that I was taught. I sang this song to my kids when, I was really, when they were really young, and it was just around. It went round and round, and it said everything I needed to say. Mommy loves you. Daddy loves you. Jesus loves you perfectly. Mommy loves you. Daddy loves you. And it just went around and around so that they knew that I loved them for sure. But my love, though strong, is not strong enough to take care of the things in your heart that you need. So as we approach James this week, we have James writing to us of this father whose love is unchangeable, whose love is invariable, right? He, he is generous and liberal to all who call on him. He is impartial as Todd taught us two weeks ago, right? So we have this God who James refers to as the father of light. He never needs a face punch. He's just the opposite of that. This is the kind of God who comes to us when we are pushing him. He comes to us. That's what kind of love he has for each one of us. And I'm just grateful that I get to trust in him. 
What James teaches us is that we genu- as we genuinely trust in God, he genuinely shapes us. And through that loving relationship, he renews us and gives us life. So this week, we're going to be looking at James 3, verses 1 to 12, where we see that our relationship with a loving God changes everything, even down to the way we speak. So the message will be titled, Taming the Tongue. Grab your copy of scriptures, or you can follow along on the screen. We're going to go ahead and read that section, and then we'll pray. James 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by, the, by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison." With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's pray. Father, we need you to teach us your word. We need you to teach us who we are. We need you to teach us who you are. And we go nowhere without you and everywhere with you. We're hungry. We're desperate for your word to understand your love. And so we ask that you illuminate our understanding this morning. We expect you to teach because you're a good father. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's go ahead and jump in. In this first segment, it begins with James cautioning those who are seeking to be teachers in various churches. And those churches have begun gathering far from Jerusalem where the church first began. In review, you know that James is the earliest letter written in the New Testament. It was written to disciples that had fled Jerusalem. If you read the book of Acts, The book of Acts is about the history of the early church, and we see in there that in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out on Jesus' followers at a prayer meeting. And when the Holy Spirit was poured out, there were signs and wonders and conviction on people, and the church grew rapidly. Thousands in some days were coming to faith. And that scared the religious leaders. It scared the government leaders. And so that church was heavily persecuted. And so the Jewish Christians were being beaten, they were being jailed, and at times being murdered. And so they dispersed outside of Jerusalem. And that's why James is written in that first verse to the, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. When the church was primarily in Jerusalem, James was one of the lead teachers of that church. They were local, they could gather. But as that church spread, local teachers were popping up in different areas, and some were probably just a little careless in their teaching. 
And so James begins this section with a caution to those teachers that there would be a judgment of greater strictness, that they would be accountable for what they say. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. You know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And so why would there be a stricter judgment for those who teach? Because the Father loves his kids. He's very serious about our care. In the same way that we care about our kids' schooling, he cares more. And if you care about your child's education, how much more would God care about how his children are learning who their heart, what their, how their heart works or who he is and how his heart works? And so he will hold those teachers accountable, and so we provide any guidance that we provide with that awareness. And though the first verse of this section is directed specifically to potential teachers, the remainder of this section, verses 3 to 12, they offer instruction that pertains to teachers for sure, but also pertains to all of us as individual children of God. James talks in this next section about human language in general and about the language used by God's children. And that's the heart of today's message and takes us to the first point of today's message in James' instruction. And his first point is that human words are powerful. It's a simple point. James begins by reminding us that, or by saying that our tongue is like a rudder of a ship or like a bit in a horse's mouth. The rudder of a ship we know is a small thing, but it controls the whole direction of the ship. We know that the bit in a horse's mouth is a small thing, but with the slightest pressure, it controls the entire direction of that horse. So our mouth is powerful, and Jewish Christian readers of this letter would be well-versed in understanding the power of words. In fact, we all, without their kind of teaching, we all understand that just as humans. But they might think back to other references. They would perhaps recall that God, the Father, created the entire universe we live in with words. Genesis 1-3 let there be light, and there was light. God said it, and there it was. Genesis 1.11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, and it was so. Genesis 1.24, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures, and it was so. God said it, and it was so. God speaks the laws of science form to fulfill his command. We might think of scriptures like Romans 4.17, where God calls into existence things that do not exist. He calls them into existence. That's how powerful his word is. Hebrews 11.3, the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So we see as God's first five days of creation, he speaks and nature responds. But on the sixth day, Scripture explains that the Father made a different kind of creature who was in his likeness, in his image, and that creature was created to have dominion. That's a human creature, right? And the human was different than everything else that was created up to that point. God gave the human authority to rule the other things that God had made. Unlike the plant, the light, the fish, the cow, the human was given an extensive ability to communicate. So God starts by using words to establish his place of beauty and rightness and goodness. And then God makes humans and gives them language and authority so that they can extend that beautiful, right, and good order. 
And that might be part of what it means to be created in his likeness. He had powerful words. We have powerful words. And those words were given to humans so that we could bless God, so that we could bless one another, so that we could bless creation and rule rightly. Early believers who read James's letter might have also just recalled scriptures from Proverbs that, that again confirm this. Proverbs 4, 20, 21, my words are life and healing to your flesh. 12, 18, the tongue of the wise brings healing. Or Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Those who love it will eat the fruit thereof. So as James indicates, human words are powerful, but we know that. That's a pretty simple concept. Think back to powerful words that have had a life-giving effect in your life. And when I think back in mine, the, one of the first examples that comes to mind was when I was 18. I think it was 18. Not that I hadn't had powerful words before that, but that just comes to mind. Let me tell you what happened. Um, when I went to college, I originally went to uh, enrolled in a criminal justice major. Um, after the first semester, I knew that wouldn't work. I don't know why, I just knew that that wasn't gonna work. In November of that semester, I had accepted Jesus, and I had no major, and so I thought, hey, you know what? I'm going to pray about it. First time in my life I ever thought to pray about what should I do with my life, God. And through those prayers, I just felt like the Lord was saying, you should go into elementary education. And that was so foreign to me. I would have never done that to myself, not in a million years. I had never dreamed about elementary education as a child. If I had been a child and God said, when you grow up, I want you to be a teacher, I would have cried so much. I would have been like, this is the worst. I can't stand school. Are you kidding me? Why would you do this to me? But through various leading, various people in my life who I, I respected, I just felt like God is saying, go into elementary education. And I had no other alternatives that I could think of, so I went that direction. And what happened is, as a young teacher, you have to teach sample lessons in front of your peers. And I remember one of those lessons I was teaching, it was on the, uh, the Very Hungry Caterpillar. That's irrelevant, let's move on. Um, one of those lessons that I was teaching, at the end of the lesson, Dr. Mary Louise Hooper, in front of my peers, looked at me, and she didn't do this to everybody, which made it special, and she went, you're gonna be a really good elementary teacher. And her words hit me like God himself had said it. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm in the right field, I'm doing the right thing. I'm sure she had no intention of doing that. She had no intention that I might bring her up 30 years later in a message. She wasn't trying, she was just saying what was on her heart and God was talking to me. And I have anchored to those words. They've meant a lot to me over the years. Some words give us life and that can be rare, sadly. Can you recall any powerful words in your life that have hurt you? I can. I'm gonna smile because it's now funny. But I was in sixth grade at Arcola Middle School. I'm in the lunch line and I, like Tucker, am trying to be funny all the time, right? And as I'm in the line, I did something that I thought was funny. And funny was just, it was a value, it was a virtue in my family. You had to be funny, right? Um, and Jeff, turns around in the line and he goes, you're not funny. And I 
was like devastated, man. That broke my whole heart and my existence for living was gone, right? But I remember that. And so in James's letter, we understand that words are powerful, but this next section kind of points us to that next key point, which says that our disconnection from God made those powerful words harmful. Human words in that first section were like rudders and bits. I can deal with that. But now our tongue is a wildfire destroying and consuming everything it can. James is saying in verses five and six that our words are an uncontrollable fire, a world of unrighteousness. In verse six, he says that our tongue sets things ablaze, stains the whole body, sets on fire our entire course of life. Man, that is heavy. Sets on fire the entire course of life. That makes me think that there are things that I'm living in now that my words may have set on fire years ago and that I'm living through those words right now, restricting myself from blessings. But interestingly, James points out that the tongue was itself set on fire by hell. So the tongue is creating this fire, but the tongue is set on fire by something else. That means our tongues didn't start the fire. Our tongue was set on fire by something that James describes as hellish. So now James points out that our tongue isn't the cause of our brokenness, but that our speech or our language is a symptom of the brokenness. And in scriptures, we learn that the brokenness we see in our lives or in our tongue, it's from our hearts. Luke 6:45 Jesus talks about this. He says the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil and here's the key for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So hearts filled with an unconquerable love, they speak one way. And hearts that are filled with an insurmountable fear, they speak a totally different direction. No matter, it's out of the abundance. So what's in your heart is going to come out your mouth. You may be able to hide it for a while. You may be able to try to stuff it down or try to lie, try to get away from it. But eventually, what's in your heart will have to come out your mouth. And so human words being rooted in our hearts show us who we are. Our hearts are setting our tongue on fire and destroying everything. It's set on fire by hell. And then the question emerges, how did that hell get in human hearts? Genesis 3 explains that there was a good God. He created good humans. He put them in a good place. He gave them directions so that they could stay connected to life but they rebelled in their thinking. They saw something and they said, this looks better. This looks better than what God said. This looks like more fun. And so they dismissed God's order. They thought, this is not a big deal. I'm just gonna do this thing my way. And they, they took their own path. And in that, their heart rebelled against God's good plan. They might not have known it was rebellion, but it was rebellion. Sin entered their heart and in that moment, they died. They disconnected. And their disconnected dead heart was immediately reflected in their language. Let's look at Genesis 3.10. In Genesis 3.10, we see that God is coming to Adam and he says, Adam, where are you? 
And Adam responds with words of fear. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. His words immediately reflected what was in his heart. They couldn't not. You know, what's interesting to me as I was pondering this is that we have been in fear since we were born. We were natives to it. Adam had a change where all of a sudden his heart was born in good and peace and love, and then he experienced the, this change that came onto him where all of a sudden he's feeling this fear that's coming into him, and this is not native to him. It's very abnormal. Whereas we've been born in this. We've had that fear our whole lives. And so we just kind of normalize it. His heart was fearful, and that fear leads to all types of speech. Look at the speech he used next. He said, did you, God said, did you eat from the tree? And Adam responds, well, the woman who you gave me, she gave me fruit. Basically, he says, he doesn't say, yes, I ate. He says, the woman you gave me. He's blaming, right? That was the woman's fault. That was, that was your fault for giving her to me. And blame is, is just another symptom of that fear in our hearts. We see that that extends. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate, right? So again, we see her saying, well, the devil made me do it. It wasn't my fault. That hell, it set our tongue on fire and that fire disconnected us from God. Besides blame though, how has the fear in the human heart affected our language? Let's look at a few examples. Gossip, disrespect, lying, bragging, insults, curses, not to be confused with cussing. I'm not advocating for cussing, but cursing is different from cussing. Cursing is when you limit the hope that somebody has in God. You say, oh no, that could never happen. That's impossible for you, right? That's cursing in scripture. Mockery is another example. These are all things that I don't know if you're seeing yourself in this, I'm seeing myself in it. Um, when I was at Planet Fitness the other day, I realized that I should probably throw into this nonverbal language because the lady in the Planet Fitness parking lot shot me so many thoughts with her face because my car was perfectly parked in my space and her car was just a little too close to the line. So when I got out, I might have, I might have touched her car with my door as I shimmied between the cars. That's not my fault, right? I had to get out of my car, but she looked at me in so many ways with her face that I felt that, that, anger coming out of her, right? So nonverbal language fits into that. Or arguing, just simple arguing. No, I'm right. No, 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 I'm right, I'm right. So we see all of these types of language that come out of this disconnected fear-based heart. And James talks about this in verse three, eight, in chapter three, verse eight. In chapter three, verse eight, this is where this, this segment of text, I think, gets the most scary for us, right? He says, no human being can tame the tongue. Then he describes it as a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Later, the apostle Paul is gonna write a letter, 
And in his chapter 3, he's going to say something like this in Romans. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. In that, both Paul and James are talking about the whole of humanity hopeless. These are words that come from a disconnected heart. It's a heart that tries to do life its own way, independent. It's going to be my plan. It's going to be my way. And the truth is when we do that, we are subjecting ourselves to a heart that is full of fear. Humans were not made to live like that. And so when we step outside of the plan, outside of the design, we sense that we're alone and on our own because we're doing it my way, and then comes fear. Because we were meant to be connected to an unconquerable and unrelenting love. And anything less than that will leave us with fear, and that fear will show up in our words. So it's hard for us to admit this. We like to downplay the damage of our harmful words. We like to ignore them. We like to walk past them. And like I said, we like to accept it as the norm. But God, God offered something better than that. See, God knew that Adam's sin would destroy us, would disconnect us, break our heart, chain it to fear, make us alone. He knew no human would be able to fix it. And so at just the right time, God sent his son. And we were in desperate need of somebody with perfect words. And that's how John described Jesus, right? The perfect word who became flesh. John 1.14 became flesh. No human being could fix this, but Jesus could. And unlike each of us, Jesus spoke, spoke perfectly even in the hardest time. John 8, 28, Jesus said, I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. Every word. John 14, 24, the word that you hear is not mine. It's the Father's who sent me. And John 12, 49, the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Every single word he spoke was full of grace and truth. Even when he was under immense pressure, tempted by the enemy, he would say, it's written. And Jesus bridled his tongue and his entire body, even to the point of death. When he was sweating blood in the garden, I mean, seriously, he could have said anything, but he said, not my will, but yours be done. Peter draws a sword to help Jesus escape from the soldiers around him. Jesus' words being perfect, he says, put your sword back in its sheath. Shall I, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? As Jesus is being arrested, he recognizes in his head, I could call a legion of angels right now and they would deliver me. But then he says, then how will the scriptures be fulfilled? And when he was mocked, hanging on the cross from nails, hanging there, being mocked, the Son of God, he says, Father, forgive them. And when it was all done and he had taken all my punishment and all your punishment, he says, it's finished. And then three days later when he rose 
and he saw Mary, he says, I'm going to my father and your father, my God and your God. Jesus did what we could never do. And so it's Jesus's finished work that bridges the gap between verse eight in this section of scripture and verse nine and 10. Because in verse eight, James describes the human condition. No human can tame the tongue, restless evil, deadly poison. But in nine and 10, he indicates that there's potential for the reader to correct his language. Verse nine, with it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Verse 10, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. How could James say that these things ought not to be so if in the verse prior he said no human being can tame the tongue? That would seem to conflict except that there's a little bit of a change in verses nine and 10. Let's go back and read those again. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. In verse nine and 10, James is able to offer hope because the reader of this letter has met God. This reader, if you look closely, recognizes that Jesus is Lord. The reader of this letter is not any more rooted in fear. The reader of this letter recognizes Jesus is Lord and recognizes the Father. The reader of this letter is actually referred to as a brother or sister of James, not through biology, but through who? Jesus. And so James is now inserting a bit of hope. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so because the reader of this letter has been reconnected to God through Christ. <clears throat> and that leads to our third point in this section. Through Christ, we are reconnected to the Father and we are empowered to bless once again. When I first read that phrase years ago, ought not to be so as a young Christian, I heard shame and judgment. Maybe you do right now as you read it. Ought not to be so. Maybe you hear James like heaping up shame on them, scrunching his face. Hey, hey, this ought not to be so. Knock it off. Work harder, try harder, do better. Maybe that's how you hear it. But actually, James is just stating a fact. He's reminding his siblings that they're children of God. They're connected to the Father. They're servants of Jesus. And because of that, they have the power to bless those he made. I'd like the worship team to come up. How does Jesus' death and resurrection change things? It's through Jesus that the Holy Spirit can now live in our hearts. Jesus's work allowed the Holy Spirit to come and abide in our hearts, which we see happening at the beginning of Acts in Acts 2. And the Holy Spirit never leaves us and helps us to learn. 
Do you remember the Old Testament promise of God where he said, I'll remove their heart of stone and I'll give them a heart of flesh. When you, when you call out to Jesus, I need you. I need you to be my Lord. I am, I am trapped in this and I have no hope. What he does is not just say, okay, I'll, okay. He actually comes into you. And he begins to take that heart of stone that's rooted in fear, that's rooted in brokenness, that speaks one way, and over years and time of walking to him, he begins to turn it into a soft heart of flesh, a heart that can hear God and respond to him. Where we don't trust God, the Holy Spirit teaches us how to trust. He frees us from fear. And freeing us from fear transforms our speech because no human being can tame the tongue, but God can tame the tongue. Only God's able to take the fear out of our speech so that with verses 11 and 12, you see that only God can remove the hypocrisy that is baked into a fearful heart where we say all kinds of things and we don't necessarily know what we're saying. But Jesus, when he comes into the human heart, he can actually make us genuine and remove that hopelessness and that hypocrisy that we all find in our words. The big idea today is that only the love of God can heal a heart and change how we speak. And I need to remind you of that because I remember when I was younger how much I did not want to talk in fear. I remember hearing about it. I remember, I remember hearing different people in my life and how they talked, and I remember thinking, I do not want to talk that way. As a young, young kid. And then I remember as I became a teenager more and more, I'm like, it's in my speech. I'm angry. I'm judgmental. I have all of this stuff. And I had tried. I really had tried to, to clean it, and I couldn't clean it up, right? So I had tried that approach. And then when I first met Jesus, and I was so happy to meet Jesus. I really, I was so grateful. But I approached him like I had to work hard to please him. I had to clean up my speech so that I could be acceptable to, who, to God. And so I spent years there too, trying to clean up my speech, trying to clean up the way I talked. I gotta quit yelling, I gotta quit doing this, I gotta quit being this way, I gotta, I just, and, and because you see it and it hurts you and you don't wanna do it, but I felt so powerless. And then I began to discover by continually walking with Jesus, thank God, I discovered that as I walked with him, I could ask him to heal my heart, to help me to want to do those things that I couldn't do. I was trying to fix my speech from the outside in, and what I needed to do was go to him and say, I need you to fix my heart. I don't love this person. I need you to help me love them. You love them. I need you to help me love them. And when I started to love them because of him, then my words changed. Prior to that, it would have just been behavior modification, right? But it's that relationship with God that finally frees you from the things that are in your heart. And over time, you learn to step out of fear and you surrender more of your heart to God's good plan. As we worship this morning, what I'd like you to do is just pause and take time to think about, God, where is my heart before you? 
where do my words indicate challenges that my heart has toward the people you've made? Just listen to how you talk in private, sometimes with people, sometimes with trusted people. What is my heart indicating? You, you created this person. You love them. How do I love them? Do I love them the way you want me to? Do I have the same thoughts toward them? Do I love them the way you do? How do I respond to my parents? How am I responding to my kids, to my wife? Am I blaming? What type of fear speech is coming out of me? And can you get deep enough in my heart that you can even change that? And the answer is yes, you can. Why don't we stand together and sing this song?